Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. The concrete pour was this big event on our construction schedule that everybody was looking forward to. And, you know, everyone came out to site that day to watch concrete get poured for 21 hours. I showed up at three o'clock in the morning at the end of November. So it was cold and it was dark, but I've never been so fascinated watching concrete get placed. (laughs) This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are Scott Crawford, partner, and Hannah Cato, associate from LMN Architects in Seattle. As a founding member of LMN's tech studio, Scott values using technology to enhance the design process and create innovative, unique solutions. Scott joined LMN in 2009 and is a versatile designer with a wide range of experience across several sectors, including higher ed and performing arts. He has a particular passion for civic projects where he has the opportunity to engage with the public and create projects that inspire and captivate. Some of Scott's representative projects include the Seattle Aquarium Ocean Pavilion, Bill and Melinda Gates Center for Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington, and Octave 9 Riesbeck Music Center. Hannah has 10 years of experience spanning a variety of project types, including office, arts and culture, and educational facilities. A detail-oriented and analytical architect, Hannah excels at providing technical support to her team and helping to streamline the design process while increasing efficiency. Girl after my own heart. From small details to the big picture, she is able to shift her scale of focus based on project requirements from highly technical details to a more holistic view. In her work, she is passionate about creating a logical solution that functions well for her client that celebrates a design while also respecting the urban fabric. Her strong technical knowledge and experience in resolving complex design challenges 
makes her a valuable asset in successful project delivery. The project we are chatting about today in this episode is the Seattle Aquarium Ocean Pavilion in Seattle, Washington. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. In the heart of Seattle's vibrant urban landscape, a groundbreaking marvel is set to redefine the aquarium experience. The forthcoming Ocean Pavilion, a testament to the Seattle Aquarium's commitment to marine conservation, is more than just a building. It's a visionary fusion of ecology, culture, and science. Yeah, so we competed for the project back in 2016. At the time, there was already work going on for the redevelopment of the Seattle waterfront. There used to be a double-decker highway that was right along the edge of the waterfront. That came down. Field operations out of New York were working on the overall master plan. And there was a site that had been left for the expansion of the aquarium. They currently have a pier that's over the water, but then this would allow them to have another facility not over the water. What was really interesting for us was the existing aquarium focuses on the Salish Sea, which is the surrounding body of water within Seattle. And the expansion wanted to take and look at the Pacific Ocean, in particular, the Coral Triangle region, with really the mission of showing the aquarium's conservation work that they're doing in the area and really pushing the idea that even though we have names for a bunch of different oceans, it's really one big body of water and that we need to start thinking about that as we make choices as a society in our relationship to the water. Serving as an immersive armature, the project houses living exhibits, ecological experiences, and theatrical spaces, inviting visitors to explore the interconnectedness of culture and marine ecology. So they definitely wanted to take and be able to have a series of large habitats. The main one is 325,000 gallons. So that's a very big body of water to contain. So they knew that they were going to have that. And that was directed by the fact that uh, certain animals that they wanted to be able to have within that habitat. They also wanted to be able to show a set of smaller coral habitats. And I'm saying smaller, but these are still 14 plus thousand gallon habitats that they were making. And then even beyond that, a small a set of even smaller habitats that you would see in most aquariums. Beyond the animals that they were keeping in the space, there was also a desire to be able to have this be a more outward-facing facility than what the existing one is, with the opportunity to invite guests in and actually have people gather so that you could discuss the conservation work, you could see presentations on this, you could have events happening within the space. Unlike traditional aquarium designs, the Ocean Pavilion transcends the conventional model. It embraces a paradigm shift, acknowledging the intricate dance between human life and ocean life. So generally for aquariums, a kind of rule of thumb that you can use is the building is split up into three parts. So one third of the space is going to be for the front of house, one third of the space is going to be for back of house, and then one third of the space is going to be for life support systems, which we frequently refer to as LSS. So, you know, front of house is kind of the visitor experience, what's accessible to the public, interactive pieces that you're learning from. The back of house is generally 
staff spaces and areas that support the building, support the animals. You know, we have some food prep areas, things like that. And then the LSS is equipment rooms for as as far as the eye can see. One of the front of house spaces that I think is worth mentioning, which you might not find at, at most aquariums, is a space that we call One Ocean Hall. And that is meant to be, it's a, a space that's circular in its configuration. You can see a lot of the different areas or habitats that you're going to be able to view into from that space. But it was also seen as a spot for the aquarium to have people gather. And whether that's a classroom of children or someone that's there for an event, being able to seat people in the round and actually have that connection uh, take place between people within the space rather than just each person having their own experience with the, the various exhibits was really important from the beginning of this. So being able to have views out so that while you're learning about something on the interior, you're also able to connect it to what's happening in the surrounding area in Seattle. Crucially, the Ocean Pavilion is more than just a physical structure. It's a cultural bridge. The project team collaborated closely with the Coast Salish tribes and the urban native community. This collaboration breathes life into the pavilion creating a space that resonates with the spirit of the land that it stands on. For this in particular, given the location of the building right on the edge of the water and the importance of the Salish Sea, which uh, others in Seattle might know of it as Puget Sound, but that is the, the term that the indigenous community uses for the area, there was a desire to have their influence in not only the overall planning of this project, but they also, the various groups that we worked with, they acted as ambassadors for the projects as we were doing outreach, uh, or the aquarium was doing outreach to indigenous communities within the Coral Triangle. And it, it just brings a different perspective to the work. And I think overall, we really benefit and enjoy having as many influencing voices on our project as possible, not trying to keep it only to ourselves. And so they were helping to enrich some of the ways that we were thinking about the habitats as well as some of the storytelling that could take part and what this place means historically in this area. We worked with multiple different individuals from the indigenous community. You know, we worked with Colleen Echohawk to connect us with different voices. And we worked with Valerie Seacrest she, so Valerie Seagrass is a botanist who provided input and guidance on us on our rooftop plantings. So our there's an interpretive story that happens across the rooftop, and we wanted to really honor indigenous plantings and kind of, you know, just what what are species that the tribes historically would use for different activities. And then kind of our biggest collaboration that we did was working with the artist Dan Friday. He's traditionally a glassblower, and we engaged him early on with our lobby design and kind of the entrance to the building. We had a couple key pieces that we we had kind of held that we wanted to collaborate with someone. So when Dan was selected, we worked with him, and he sketched, for our ceiling design, he sketched a pattern that's important to his tribe. And LMN, we basically took that pattern that he drew, and we took that into our model and created all these parametric designs based off of it. And we're actually going to fabricate that in-house and install it onto the ceiling. So his artwork and his drawings are actually fully integrated into the architecture. They're not kind of just put on display somewhere, you know, and on this podium. It's actually just a part of the building. What material is it going to be? You guys are doing it in-house? That's cool. We're doing it in-house. 
yeah, the material is, uh, it's called Skate Light. It's paper composite flat sheet material that we can basically, we have an in-house CNC machine so we can cut out all the pieces and assemble. We're basically assembling a panelized system that we're going to deliver to the contractor, which we're building in our new shop. The building sits within a tight, complex network of bridges surrounding waterfront construction, public pathways, and the convergence of downtown Seattle and the sea. So when we first started on the project with that field operations master plan that I was mentioning before, there was already an idea of where the aquarium would be located. We don't have actually a specific site when we started this. Like There was no property boundary. We're operating within within the Seattle right-of-way. So there are some complicated other projects going on around us. There was a road that was being uh, rerouted, designed at the time. It wasn't under construction. There is a, a bridge that is going over that road that a whole other design team and uh, contractor team was and client team was responsible for. And then there's our project touching all those things in the middle of it. But when we started, we actually looked at we have a bit of a, a wedge of a site and they wanted initially to put the the mass of the building at the wider part of the wedge. But in our analysis of it, even though it was going to make things maybe a little bit more challenging for our project, we thought that urbanistically it made more sense to pull into the tighter side of the wedge because that allowed us to open up a space that we could have as a public gathering area in this elevated plaza with this open view out to the Salish Sea. So that was one of our first moves that we then kept having to figure our way around with everything being tighter, but I think it's going to make for a really exciting space out there. Another thing we did was we actually asked the team that was working on the bridge to raise the elevation of the bridge by eight feet because we took a drone out to the site and we uh, did a panoramic view of what we had imagined would be the view from the roof. And we found that some of the piers were perhaps going to block your view to the Salish Sea in certain directions. And we wanted you to be able to have this wide sweeping panoramic view of water across the entire area. They were early enough in the design and willing to work with us that they did agree to move their entire bridge up eight feet, which was no small deal uh, at the time. And, and it was really rewarding the first time we got to go up on that roof and actually see that view. And uh, it worked. Uh, we, we do get this wide, expansive view. And the location of this site being in this really unique area of at the edge between the water and downtown really shaped a lot of how we thought about both the the spaces that we were creating as well as the expression of the building on the exterior. So we're trying to create a, a set of uh, exterior rooms, essentially, that are open to the public, and they occur at near the water level, about 16 feet above that and 50 feet above that. So you have this variety of experiences from all those different directions. On the side of the building that faces out towards the water, that is the front of house side. So that's where we're going to have a lot of those habitats and spaces for visitors to come and enjoy. And we're trying to highlight views both out to the Salish Sea through one window, as well as down the entire waterfront to Mount Tahoma, which this is another name that we learned. That's actually the indigenous name for Mount Rainier. So we highlight those two spaces from the visitor side, and that edge of the building is treated more like uh, conceptually a, a bluff that you might find along 
the the coastline. So we're using more natural materials there. We have a timber facade rain screen that is composed of Alaskan yellow cedar that we worked very closely with the contractor Turner to source from an indigenously held forest that they are going to be able to provide to us for the project. It'll just be naturally finished and it'll age in silver over time. And then on the the city side of the building, that's where we have a lot of our back of house and life support areas. And so that was in its function, more of this machine. And so it has more of a metal panel system that fits into the industrial-ish character of that edge of downtown, more of the, the working side of things. There's the Seattle City Light building that's not far away that also is fairly industrial. So we're trying to take on all the different sides of the building and consider what its relationship is to its context in direct proximity to it. And, and the crazy thing is, like, oftentimes a building will be uh, said to have like the, the backside of the building that not many people see. There is no backside to this. You, you are able as a, a visitor to experience all sides at once. But in doing all of this, we created this, I think, unique way for the building to fit within its context. And it's also enriching it, in in our opinion, uh, to a great degree, because with our project and the way in which we're tying into some of those other surrounding projects, you will now be able to walk from the waterfront all the way to Pike Place Market, a connection that normally did not exist as seamlessly as it's going to when this opens up. Public pathways intricately woven with interpretive native gardens serve as vertical connections between multiple levels of public plazas. Sweeping geometries on the west side of the pavilion extend toward the Puget Sound and the vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean, offering breathtaking views that connect visitors to the majesty of the natural world. So field operations was responsible for the entire waterfront master plan, and then we also had them on our team as the landscape architects. They're also the landscape architects on the Overlook Walk project, which is the bridge that crosses over the new road. So because they were on both teams, we actually worked very closely with them to take what they had already been planning as a set of gathering spaces and gardens on the Overlook Walk. And we looked at being able to reshape some of those and have them tie seamlessly into the roof of our building. This wasn't something that was necessarily required of the project from the very beginning, but it felt like there was already this sequence of spaces that were happening with these elevated gardens that we should probably continue that as well. So we have a couple different areas there. We have one area that during design we referred to as the, the sunset seating. We actually mapped it out for a winter to summer sunset so that it kind of gives you the full breadth of the view out across the Salish Sea to the, the Olympics. And that I think is going to be a pretty breathtaking space. It's got cedar plank seating that's part of it uh, at multiple tiers. At the south end of the building, we have another set of seats that will look down the length of the waterfront and is on axis with Mount Rainier. And then there's a set of gardens in that area that we collaborated with Valerie, who Hannah mentioned before, to select a, a planting palette that takes and highlights 
the various plants that indigenous communities of the area would use both for, say, basket weaving or for medicine or for food. So the, the gardens up there are meant to be yet another interpretive moment of that region and place that we're, we're fitting within. It's situated or the circulation is laid out in such a way that you've got views that are unencumbered by railings because we have an upper viewing area and a lower viewing area. Uh, so that will be really exciting. And then that also allows for an event to happen up there with the public still able to circulate around the edges of that. So this roof is the roof that's just basically sitting on top of that three-story tank. So I need to know, what is, what is your roof made of? What, is, what are the components of this roofing system? So we have a collection of steel wide flange beams that are all custom because they actually are kinked in profile to allow the seating to fit onto the slope of that. Sitting on top of the beams are hollow core concrete planks. So we worked early on, we got a tour of a facility here in the Northwest called Concrete Tech. We learned that they make these things 600 feet at a time in a large yard, and then they just slice them up. So we worked with them to come up with a plan for how we could be able to put those in place. And the advantage of them is they can span about 20 feet and they could just easily install them very quickly. There's a topping slab that goes on top of that, a waterproofing membrane. And then we're using the insulation for both being able to take and get the thermal resistance that we need, as well as it starts to give the overall shaping of the roof. And then there's another finished slab that goes over top of that. An aquarium's design already demands a set of very unique parameters, and LMN's design was no exception. So this was the first aquarium that we've ever done, and that's the type of project that that we love working on is being able to kind of immerse ourselves in the specialized knowledge of all the consultants we're working with. I think the habitats themselves, you're creating these little mini worlds. You have the life support systems for that. You also have the structure that you're having to build to contain all of that water, which it turns out like when you have 30 feet of water, it actually puts a lot of pressure on the sides of those structures. And then you also have the windows to view into those areas. And so being able to create these pieces of acrylic that give you this immersive view into these habitats, but then having to think about the the formwork for how you go about making those and, and those being things that, I mean, it's a giant piece of acrylic that is initially made flat and then they make a form and they put it in an oven and they slump that against the form. And we're talking about pieces of acrylic that might be eight inches thick, 30 feet wide while they slump form it against these molds. So the more that we were learning about that fabrication side, the more fascinating all these little bits of an aquarium environment became to us. There were so many factors that we kind of had to incorporate into the design. So it was, you know, how are the scuba divers going to use this space? What do, the, what do they need? What is their circulation path, not only within the tank, but then also once they exit the tank and, you know, dry their equipment, rinse their equipment, and, you know, a whole series of, of sequences that have to happen after that. If you were to see the coordination documents for the all the piping that's running through, I mean, buildings normally have a bunch of conduit and pipes running through. But once you're talking about an aquarium, now all of a sudden, we've got maybe three times as much piping, and they're not small pipes. And so to 
take and work through weaving that three-dimensionally through space so that they can get back to the reservoirs, so they can get to the pumps and filters, so they can get back to the habitats. That, that was a fun challenge for us to, to work through on the project. Required a lot of coordination amongst both our building engineers as well as the, the folks that are responsible for the life support systems. Yeah, there was a lot of work during design. So the life support system it has a, a sectional relationship. Like not only are you laying it out within the building, but sectionally there's a relationship to the degas tower and the water level in the exhibit and then the fractionators and the pumps and the sand filters. And so all of those have to be laid out sectionally and you have to fit them, not only fit them within the building, but make sure that they have the right relationship to each other. The aquarium's ethos centers on moving away from the stereotypical theater of ecosystems, or as LMN puts it, which I loved, fish TV. So while we haven't worked on an aquarium before, we were partnering on this project with Think Design uh, out of New York, and they've done a number of aquariums. And one of the terms that they introduced us to was something called fish TV, which is that you walk up to a rectangle in a wall and you look in it like it's a TV and then you move on to the next one. And so what we were trying to do different than that was be able to create a series of immersive experiences where you're not walking up to just this one rectangle view into the habitat, but instead use the geometry of it. So have those windows curved so you can really feel like you can walk into the middle of it, have them come up over your head, give you multiple views into one habitat so you can keep coming back to the same thing and get a different perspective on it while also keeping in mind that each time you go to one of those windows, you don't want to see another window because that kind of spoils the immersion if you're looking across and you see other people looking into the, the same habitat that you're looking into. And, and so that really created a situation where we were constantly trying to think about what you were going to be able to see from each direction and create a circulation path through the building that allowed you to kind of double back on spaces. And so uh, we have a bit of a figure eight as the overall circulation through the building, and that's occurring across multiple levels, and that's using ramping in areas to really give you that ability to feel like you're exploring the overall habitat from all these different perspectives rather than just getting that one glimpse and then you move on to the next one, which is potentially a different ecosystem. The views, as I was mentioning before, aren't just meant to be something where you look into the habitat and and that's the the total part of the experience, but it's instead being able to turn around and look out these uh, large windows that we have to the surrounding area and be able to make connections for the interpretive material that you're learning about in terms of the effect that our behaviors have on the environment. You can look out the window and see, okay, I get it. Like They're talking about this here in a hypothetical, but then you can look out the window and, and see our city and wonder, like, are, are we doing all we can to help benefit these environments? So that connection was really important to us during design. So we have a lot of windows in our aquarium, which is also, you know, going away from the traditional aquarium design, which are typically kind of darker buildings that are more enclosed. But because we wanted to make this connection, introduce a lot of windows and which made our aquarium a daylit aquarium. So there was a lot of different pieces that we had to incorporate to basically mitigate the effects of daylight so that to make sure it didn't negatively impact any habitats, you know, so we did simulations for every window to 
minimize daylighting that comes in and would reflect on any of these windows, but then also shape the actual acrylic to make sure that it's reducing the amount of reflections that are reflecting the sunlight from behind you. So there was a lot of study that went into just those geometric relationships to make sure that our daylit aquarium is successful at the end of the day. Habitat design was a crucial element of the facility that required expertise and care to ensure a healthy display of the wildlife. Yeah, so so our exhibit designer is Think Design out of New York, and they actually have within their team a habitat designer. He designed basically all of the environments within each habitat, and he, I think, had the coolest job. So he's an avid scuba diver, and so he basically used his own reference images from around the world when he was designing the habitats and the rockwork within each exhibit. So he has a lot of expertise. Think has a lot of expertise because they do a lot of aquarium work. And then also we just we worked with the aquarium, you know, because they had a lot of expertise and they had a lot of just connections within the industry of, you know, how do you care for this type of animal? How do you care for this type of animal? But those conversations were always just super fascinating to listen to because, you know, we would talk about one specific animal and the aquarium they just know them so well. So they'd be like, oh, no, no, this animal needs X, Y, and Z, but they don't want this, but they do want this. And they need this, this definitely, like they need this type of habitat. They need this amount of sand. And then you'd go to the next animal and they would go down a completely different rabbit hole and list out all the different things that, you know, they just know each animal so well. It's almost like they know a friend, you know, and they're just constantly advocating for them. Like, no, they're not going to like that. They're, they're going to like this. I think one of the cool things that we got to do as part of this was one of the tanks has uh, a set of soft corals uh, growing within it. And I think we have about 14 feet of water or so within that. Uh, Typically, and these corals are photosynthetic. So the light is actually important, not just for seeing into the tank, but for them to be able to grow properly. And one of the things that we wanted to do was not have the lights be right in the view, the face of folks as they're viewing into this. And so we wanted to put them on the ceiling about 20 feet up. And there was a question, can we actually get the light to penetrate deep enough into the water? So we took and we got some of the fixtures and we worked with the aquarium to use the habitat that they currently have in Pier 59. And we went over there and we did a set of mock-ups and we actually put a light meter in the water and we took and recorded the light levels down at the depth that we were seeking to have the lights penetrate to. So it's really cool to be able to do these mock-ups to know that like this isn't just a, a performance mock-up to see whether like it's going to visually give us what we want, but like are we going to get the light levels necessary for being able to do this, which was leading us in really interesting directions of getting to work with manufacturer manufacturers to customize these LED fixtures to get a chip put within them that had the correct wavelengths of light for coral, but it's otherwise a theatrical fixture that we're using. So not something that would typically be used in an aquarium. And I think that goes back to the folks that we tend to collaborate with across our range of projects. We love being able to see like, how do we learn things from performing arts and then bring them to bear in this case on an aquarium. Aligned with the Seattle Aquarium's mission, LMN prioritizes the health of local ecosystems by reaching for net zero carbon and net zero energy status. This commitment to a sustainable future is underscored by the project's ambitious goal of achieving LEED New Construction Gold Certification. 
sustainability is really important to LMN. And then the aquarium, actually, their mission is to inspire conservation. So our sustainability goals just made a lot of sense. So we're targeting lead gold. And then recently, the owner is actually having conversations with ILFI to explore those certifications. But there's a lot of different things that we did. I think one of the one of my favorite examples is we introduce heat exchangers all around the building. So our HVAC system is an air source heat pump and it's all electric. And our life support system is also all electric. And so both systems traditionally, if they had excess heat, they would just exhaust them to the environment. But we actually went through a lot of work in the beginning of the design to connect the two systems. So if either one of them had excess energy, excess heat, they would just feed into the other system. And so we actually saved a lot of energy by doing that, which is really exciting. And then like kind of additionally, we also did the same thing in terms of our water. We have a heat exchange reservoir that actually transfers a lot of our heat over to conserve as much energy as possible. And and these were really interesting discussions early on. So we were working with uh, PAE engineers on the building engineering side and then PCA on the, the LSS systems. And so needing to, like, we could have just had them as two separate coordination meetings between the two sides, but being able to pull them together and get them to start talking to each other, I, I think that's what we often see as our greatest role within the project is making sure we're facilitating that communication and, and seeing the potential connections and trying to bring those groups together to see what we can get out of it. Because that's where then these interesting things start coming about of ways we can be innovative with how we use those systems. When it came to material selections, LMN prioritized health-conscious, sustainable materials. Choosing healthy materials is always very important to us. And, you know, we try to use as many recycled materials as we can, things of that nature. We've talked about a lot of them so far, but one of my favorites is actually the the carpet in the building. It's made of recycled fishing nets and recycled water bottles, which just, you know, reinforces the story of the aquarium and kind of their mission, which I think is really great. We also made a lot of efforts to reduce the embodied carpet on this building. So we just use that as a reference point when we were selecting materials. We were constantly, you know, doing calculations to see. So I think the structure, the concrete in our building, we've reduced the embodied carbon by 38%, and then in the overall building, 32%. Navigating the interior posed a myriad of challenges, encompassing the intricacies of vertical design, humidity control, and the integration of marine-grade materials all while preserving an atmosphere of unrestricted exploration within the space. There's not a prescribed route that you're supposed to take through the building. Like there is an entrance and you'll go up the entrance ramp. But once you go there, it's a bit of choose your own adventure with the hope that people are lingering within the space rather than just going on a forced march through and then you get to the exit and you go through the gift shop and you're done. And so with that, we wanted to think about what was going to cause people to linger within these spaces. So one of the other things that we're going to be responsible for fabricating on this project is we have about a 60-foot-long bench that is a semicircle within the One Ocean Hall space. It actually has two tiers of seating as part of it, and that's meant to offer the ability for folks to 
take a pause, soak it all in, get up, move around. We worked with Think on the design of that space so that it'll be actually in addition to the habitats you can see from there. There will be projection mapping on a lot of the railing surfaces. So you'll be able to have various video content projected around the walls as well as on the the one habitat, the archipelago, which contains those coral exhibits. There will be projection that can happen on that as well. So really trying to take advantage of all the surfaces that we have to help enrich the overall experience. Similar to how we approach the exterior where you're approaching this building from all sides, once you're inside the building, we design the exhibits so you can approach them from any side too. So there's also not a backside to any exhibit. So you can circulate around them, see them from above, see them from below, which which had its own kind of set of challenges and just different constraints that we had to incorporate into creating those exhibit structures. So our large vessel is 325,000 gallons. So it's three stories high, but to contain that much water, the amount of hydrostatic pressure that's actually pushing out on those walls increased the thickness of our walls to like 24 inches thick. And so when we were designing this with our structural engineer, they said, you know, at this point, you're holding up the roof for free. So we actually extended the tank all the way up to the roof. And so it supports all of our roof beam. That public roof is basically just sitting and resting on our tank. But yeah, so it's just a a structural feat of engineering. The amount of rebar that's in the structure is, I think it's over a million pounds of rebar, which is like typically what you would see in a 60-story sheer wall is within our exhibit. So yeah, but the water, there's uh, a lot of humidity concerns that come with that and just kind of how we mitigate that. It's also um, because we're, Coral Triangle is all warm water exhibits, so our building has a lot of warm water. And so just how we mitigate that and handle that with our HVA system was all, you know, perfectly in tuned. Our, our MEP designers designed specifically to the temperature that the tank would be held at, essentially. There was a, a number of drawings within the set that would call out the humidity and water conditions within spaces so that you knew whether or not you had to use stainless steel hanger rods or whether you could use galvanized or whether you had to use a marine grade lighting fixture, or whether you could use a normal one. And so there's a lot of things that happen on the, the functional pragmatic side with an aquarium that you have to pay attention to because you've got salt water in the space. So highly corrosive and you got to make sure that this is all going to last for a long time. Yeah, we had a subcontractor, I think, who has said, this is the first project where I've done marine grade plywood on the inside of the building. But yeah, we we had to factor that into every material choice that we made. And it was not only, we basically have a, a matrix of all of our rooms and how wet is it expected to be? How is there expected to be water on the floor? Is there expected to be splashing? You know, are you adjacent to a body of water like if you're within four feet of a tank you need to have your protection level has to increase so it there was a lot of coordination to to get all those pieces right arguably the most formidable facet of the project revolved around the management of saltwater containment and pressurization yeah i guess well water's heavy uh, i think it's like per cubic foot it's 8.36 pounds or something like that so it's really heavy. So our structural engineer had a lot of constraints they had to design around and just, yeah, we talked about the hydrostatic pressure and making sure it doesn't push out on the actual structure. And then, yeah, just the amount of humidity that it generates, the pipes that go into it, 
are in our specific case we have a waterproofing admixture in the concrete around all of our exhibits and then we have a waterproofing membrane which we've always kind of talked about as it's like a belt and suspenders approach to it so it, we have two systems that contain all of our exhibits and then basically on top of that is your rock work and the habitats that are within there yeah coordinating all the piping getting all the piping in and out and around the tanks what was interesting was they they took and they place all the the concrete for the the main habitat so you have the structure you strip the formwork off and after they went through and cleaned all of that up they fill it up with water and then they and at that point the acrylics installed as well but they fill it up and they watch and find where it leaks because it's definitely going to leak somewhere and then they have to go in and inject into the cracks uh, a sealant to help seal all of that up and then they can come back and put that uh, waterproofing membrane that hannah was talking about and they'll do another test again from that so th this like multiple steps and and these were things that we were told about early on in the project because that was going to affect the construction schedule because all of a sudden you're going to have to fill this thing up <laughs> with water how long does it take them hannah 20 couple days yeah to fill the tank with water i think takes two days so i'm assuming this waterproofing membrane is like a fluid applied yeah it's cementitious based so it's fluid applied and it actually has a, a bit of a flex to it so it can handle if there's any kind of settling or moving that happens over time the structure itself so we wanted to remove any cold joints that happen within the body of water so i think that's about 24 feet up 30 feet up so when the contractor was coordinating the, the pour for the large exhibit, it's and it, the surfaces are all curvilinear on each side. There's very few flat areas. And so we ended up working with Janicki. We connected the contractor with Janicki, who's traditionally an aerospace engineer. And they CNC'd foam panels and assembled them all on site. So it's 250 unique foam panels that are connected on both sides and then they're poured into. But because we didn't want any cold joints, they had to build the entire structure up at 24 feet. And just the, the natural shape is a little bit, almost an inverted pyramid, if you can imagine that. And so the bottom, when they poured this whole thing, that bottom piece was completely blind and the contractor couldn't actually get down and see into that piece to avoid these cold joints. And so the concrete pour was this big event on our construction schedule that everybody was looking forward to. And, you know, everyone came out to site that day to watch concrete get poured for 21 hours. I showed up at three o'clock in the morning at the end of November. So it was cold and it was dark, but I've never been so fascinated watching concrete get placed. <laughs> and it's one of those things that the, the concrete was a special mixture. There's actually no aggregate in it. It's more of a grout because of the density of the rebar in order to get to flow through everything. And so because of that, it, it was like a milkshake. And so they would have instances where all those pieces of formwork that we have, there's gaps and seams in between it. And occasionally you get a blowout and you'd all of a sudden see a crew of people like go over and just like take that on and like work really quickly to, to patch that blowout. And then they just keep going with the rest of the pouring. Beyond the notable effort of designing and building an aquarium, the team also had to contend with two other projects that were simultaneously in construction on each side of the pavilion. The amount of coordination between the three contractors was no small feat. 
not only are we downtown, we're in the middle of two other active projects. So when we drew our, our drawings around the project, we, we have no site area in our project. It's just the building itself because all, all around us is the main corridor promenade project that's ongoing. And it's so when we drew our drawings, it, we said existing conditions, but our existing conditions do not exist yet. So that project is ongoing. And then at the same time, the city's Overlook Walk project, which is that bridge, is also ongoing. And that bridge actually has foundations that go into our basement. And so we, like, needless to say, there's so much coordination that's happening with these three contractors that are all on top of each other. Even just like the connection to Overlook Walk, there's areas of our building where you know, we're the substructure, we're the waterproofing, it's our insulation, and then the boundary actually flips to the other project, and then it's their insulation, their paving, and then their finishes. So just those two contractors working together, there's there's a lot of coordination that's happens that has been happening, and just the, the three of them all together are kind of constantly pivoting or, you know, you have laydown space, can I borrow this laydown space for tomorrow and I'll give you back some of this you know, the next day after that. So there's a lot of that going on. And then kind of not even adding in the cruise ship port is two blocks away. So on cruise ship days all throughout this past summer, we actually had to, the road has flipped to the other side of our building. So it was existing. It was on the west side of the building. It's flipped to the east side, but we actually had to keep that west lane open to allow cruise ship traffic to come through our project. But the cruise ship traffic is literally driving through our construction site. They pull back the fences and tour buses drive through our construction site to get through. So there was a, a lot of coordination that had to happen during construction. Our contractor is Sterner Construction and they've been really great. And their favorite line that they like to say is this building would be hard to build in a cornfield. And like adding in all of these urban factors has just been, been a challenge. Takes it to the next level. <laughs> Well, I, I think actually the really cool thing on this project is everybody is in that state of mind. And so everybody looks at it from a really collaborative point of view. It's like, okay, you know, everybody is, their egos are at the door and it's like, okay, how are we going to get this done? You know, we'll be in meetings with subcontractors, the design team, the contractor, the owner, and everybody's just, you know, throwing out ideas of how do we solve, you know, this next issue that's popped up and, you know, how do we pivot? How do we, how do we get through this? And so just watching the teams work together has been really, really cool to see. The Ocean Pavilion stands not just as a testament to architectural innovation, but as a living embodiment of the interconnectedness of humanity and the ocean. Scott and Hannah gleaned many lessons learned from the entire process. So when I started at LMN 14, 15 years ago, uh, I was in this R&D group in the office uh, called Tech Studio, and we were meant to bring emerging technologies into the practice. And, and I think we, we still take and put a lot of effort into that. And the tools that we employed on this project were definitely allowed us to take and achieve what we did in the end. But I, I think it's less about the technology and more about the thing that, like, at this point, I'm not surprised anymore, but I was initially in my career. You can have all these tools and technologies that seem like they're the latest whiz-bang thing that's going to make everything great. But really, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to communication. And whether that's a conversation you're having or a drawing that you're putting together or a model that you're sharing with someone, the more clearly you can take 
and articulate the direction that the design is wanting to go and what the issues are and how you might approach them. And the more that you can draw out the answers from those with the specialized knowledge, the more successful you're going to be in the project in the end, because we can take and work in a vacuum and create all kinds of crazy models of things, but those aren't going to necessarily work in the end if we're not having it informed by the, the specialized knowledge uh, of those that we're working with. And, and I think on this project, we were able to place ourselves in a position very intentionally at the beginning to say, like, let us be the translator into the 3D geometry of the things that everyone is looking at. And so we could handle the complexity of that geometry, but allow their knowledge to directly inform what we're doing. And it's really great to do that because not everyone is necessarily going to know the latest 3D modeling software or parametric modeling or how to use a CNC machine. But if we can take and be the ones that operate on those sides and just make sure that we're open to having that conversation with everyone and actually understanding what their focus is rather than just forcing them to adopt our vision. We end up with a more successful result in the end. Yeah, I would say really similarly, kind of just seeing firsthand and kind of up close the construction process and kind of filing away like a lot of small nuggets of, you know, how could you document something more clearly? How could you document something that the subcontractor is going to understand in their own, their language? You know, and so I, I think I just have a lot of those moving forward. Hannah mentioned before the the shop that we have that uh, we're going to be fabricating a few of these components out of. And that arose from this understanding that like the computers and the drawings that we're creating are all well and good. But if we don't actually understand what those lines represent on that sheet, then we're not necessarily going to be able to achieve the greatest extent of what our design intent is. And so it's a space that for a while was in a basement, but now it's a, a storefront space uh, right in Pioneer Square in Seattle, which is great because we can use it both as this 6,000 square foot shop where we can make our own things for projects or make prototypes and mock-ups, but it also allows us to invite people into that space and be able to demonstrate to them that we really do care about how this all comes about. And like that space is a representation of it. And we want to have that level of collaboration. This facility contains a host of unique and monumental features. I was curious to hear what Scott and Hannah's absolute favorites were. I think for me, it's going to be the the rooftop. I think when that opens, it's a, a space I could imagine constantly going out there and actually having lunch up on it. It's such a weird, you're in this elevated position 50 feet off the waterfront, but yet you also feel like you're on a street that connects uh, up towards the market. And I think it's going to be a really exciting space for everyone in the city to be able to come and enjoy. My favorite part is this window that we call the Oculus window. So the main exhibit, it actually cantilevers over the front door of the building. So we have this big overhang that shelters people from the public. And within that area, we actually introduced a skylight into the main exhibit. So it's an exterior skylight. So if you're waiting in line to enter the building, you can look up and see animals swimming overhead. But also my favorite part is that if you're not going to buy a ticket, if you're just walking along the waterfront, you can walk past this and get a glimpse into the main exhibit of the building, which is just a really cool, you know, kind of gift back to the city. The Seattle Aquarium's Ocean Pavilion is poised to be more than an attraction. It's a transformative experience that transcends boundaries and fosters a deep connection between people and the precious waters that surround us. Before we close out this episode, 
I always try to gain some additional insights about the greater industry from our guests. I was curious what advice Scott and Hannah would give to anyone looking to take on a first-time type of project. What are the steps they could take to jump off that bridge with success? One, we love first-time projects. I would say as an office, we really relish the, the ones that are going to be challenging and force us to do something different than we've done in the past. And I, I think key to that is uh, having an open mind from the very beginning and knowing that all the voices that you're working with actually have something to contribute to that. And along the way, just ask a lot of what-if questions, because that's where you're actually going to find the opportunities. But if the shark breaks out of the tank? We actually had those conversations. <laughs> we, well, actually, our acrylic is a, it's a performance specification. So in the performance spec, it says the acrylic needs to withstand the force of a, I can't remember if it was like a 600-pound shark swimming at a ramming speed. Um, <laughs> I want to write one spec where I get to type something <laughs> like that into it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of the better parts of our spec, spec book. I really enjoyed this conversation with Scott and Hannah. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. Yeah, I think mine would be, I always hope to see logic prevail. And I think that is interpreted differently in a lot of different situations, but I, I think it's always frustrating to me when, you know, this is the way it's always been. So this is the way we're always going to keep doing it. So just kind of questioning those situations. I think the the built environment could use more curves. I think just because the rectangle might be simple, you can make a beautiful box, but it doesn't mean that everything needs to, to try to be that. And, and there's a lot that we can learn from the way the natural world shapes things that actually excites something, I think, within us as humans and connects us to something that you can't really put your finger on what exactly it is, but it's exciting when you're there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.